Welcome to First Pitches, where famous founders break down the very first version of their pitch so you can master yours. I'm Lolita Taub, co-founder and general partner at the Community Fund. And I'm Eric Bond, co-founder and general partner at Hustle Fund. Lolita, ready for some real talk with these founders? Sure, let's do it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. I'd like to introduce you to a team that every founder should know about. It's GS Futures. GS Futures is a new multi-stage VC fund that launched just this year, investing into teams at early seed all the way through Series D. This team spun off from the GS Group in Korea, a legendary enterprise representing assets in retail, consumer, energy, and much more. GS Futures is actively seeking and investing into great hustlers. Go to their website right now, gsfutures.vc, and tell them what you're up to. I think you'll be excited to partner with them. Berkland is the recognized leader in outsourced CFO, tax, and accounting services for startups at the emerging and growth stages. As a sponsor of First Pitches, Berkland would like to offer listeners a free finance consultation. Berkland also offers important tools on its website, a financial controls matrix, finance 101 for startups, contingency toolkits, tax and marketing calculators, and other critical resources for scaling a company. Visit berklandassociates.com slash hustle. Let me ask you something. How many times has a cold LinkedIn message turned into something meaningful for you? What about sending a cold LinkedIn message to meet a potential co-founder who you otherwise would never have met? What are the odds that it even works out? Well, on today's episode of First Pitches, we interview Sid Viswanathan, who did just that and successfully built a startup, raising over $30 million in the process. Sid is the co-founder and president of TruePill, a startup revolutionizing the healthcare patient experience. Think Shopify for healthcare. Before TruePill, Sid was the co-founder of CardMunch, a business card scanning app acquired by LinkedIn in 2011. Under Sid's leadership at LinkedIn, CardMunch was named one of Time Magazine's best apps of 2012. But after four years at LinkedIn, Sid was ready to scratch that itch again. The problem? He didn't know what to do next. And that's when a random encounter with a LinkedIn status update changed Sid's life forever. You're going to have to listen to the rest of the episode to find out how it ends. Sid, it's an honor to have you here to share your story, and we're so excited to hear your first pitch. Thank you so much for having us, and I've never heard a better intro, so thank you so much for the kind (laughs) words. We're so pleased to have you here today. So, you know, I want to take you back in time, Sid, because the first time that you and I met was actually in 2011. So I have a distinct memory of this. Um, it was me, uh, our mutual buddy, Samir, and Boe, right? Old, old buddies. Uh, they actually invited me over to LinkedIn where you're hosting us. Uh, we were at a picnic table. You gave me a terrible sandwich at the cafeteria for lunch. And uh, at this time, I think you had just freshly been acquired by Card Munch, and you're providing me some advice because I was going through an M&A process as well. And I just always had a really good memory of that experience of uh, some of those like super nice uh, who was who joining this team. Uh, 
I wouldn't have anticipated actually that you stay with LinkedIn this long. Can you walk us through um, from that moment of that when we met in the intervening time, like what was that journey like? What were you trying to learn from your LinkedIn experiences and how did you apply that then eventually to uh, TruePill, which you're, you're running today? Yeah, I think you got to go back a little bit in time to think about when you first get started founding a company or getting started with CardMunch. Really the, the evolution of that was my desire to sort of break into tech and start getting a job and working more closely in the tech industry. But the reality was having a mechanical engineering background, working as a device engineer out of college, no one would give me a software related job. And so at that point, you have to take control of, of the situation a little bit and stumbled into this idea around card munch, working with, with Bowe and Manu, and decided to formulate the initial thesis for, for that opportunity. And by the time we, we sold the business to, to LinkedIn in, in 2011, I think it was the first realization that as founders, you, you kind of act as a product manager. You're a product manager, you do deal with the business stuff, you deal with every part of the business day to day, but you don't have any formal training in product management. So when you get into LinkedIn and you start to understand how a more institutionalized product culture is developed and how product teams are designed to scale, especially when... At the time, LinkedIn is going through its, its pre-IPO setup and going through its hyper growth phase, really for the first time learning what it means to be a product manager at a company at the scale of six and learn from my, my colleagues and other product managers on what it means to do product in a hyper growth company. And I think once you build that foundation of product knowledge and, and product sense and product execution, those are things that last for, for your entire career and certainly uh, helped me as we got started with the next opportunity when I left LinkedIn. But so I knew from the beginning that you're a builder and I knew that we would eventually have a conversation like this, maybe not through a podcast uh, with Lolita and Hung, uh, like talking about a, another company you're building. But uh, it, it took four years, you know, for you to uh, to do your graduate school education, paid graduate school education at LinkedIn. Uh, were you intentional in terms of certain kinds of skills that you're trying to build during this period of time? I think so. I mean, I've learned over time the different types of product managers and the type of competencies that some product managers have and others don't. And trying to understand, you're trying to figure out what your product superpower is and trying to understand where you fit within the entire product ecosystem. And it takes time. It takes years to sort of master your craft. And I would say now 10 years into my career, you're still honing in on that craft. And if you think of product management as sort of a a craft, you can craft that for the rest of your career and life in terms of how you figure out how to get better in different areas and uh, get stronger in certain areas. And I think it takes, you know, I like to say, I'd like to spend the rest of my career thinking about products. And now I, I've just added this additional layer of saying, I want to spend the rest of my career in healthcare as well. And so it's, it's sort of narrowing of the problem space, but really thinking about products uh, all day long. And uh, for me, it's, it's something I love doing uh, from the second I get up to the second I go to sleep. Um, I'm thinking about products as it relates to healthcare and it's sort of what keeps me energized and, and going for years. So Sid, I have a quick question, actually two part question. One is what was that magic sauce that you found in yourself as, as doing product management? And then what was it in your journey that, that, that caused you to say, you know, I have this further entrepreneurial itch to start something else and, and tell us about that story there. Yeah. You know, I don't know if I fully figured it out yet, but I think I have some of the elements of it. I think just being able to operate at speed with, with multiple areas of a product, whether it's the conceptualization, the design side of it, the actual building side of it. You know, I think being a builder first was, was something that I learned later. I didn't know how to build a product, even a rough prototype. And that was a, 
a skill set that in many ways was, was unlocking for me and my career to, to feel like you're truly empowered to, to have an idea and go that entire spectrum of building a prototype, for example. And it, it is something that uh, I think I was able to n- never master. I don't think I would ever say that I've mastered the ability to build, but in certain areas of design and, and product and engineering, I was able to be dangerous enough that I was able to wear a mul- multiple hats in the early stages. And I think when you look at any early founding stages of a company, what I like to give advice on to, to other founders as well is, is make sure that in your founding team, you have every skill set you need to build that MVP end to end. And as soon as you have a weakness where you need to rely on an outside development shop or you need to de- uh, rely on an outside design support, for example, that's an area that you just have to identify as a weakness in your founding team. And it's not insurmountable, but just be aware that the more kind of areas or bases you can cover in your founding team skill set, um, the, the further you can go in the beginning without having to raise a lot of money or without having to deploy a lot of capital. Mm-hmm. And I think being capital efficient in those first months and years of your company, they're so, so critical to, like I said, unlocking those future phases. So I think that's what I would say I've, I've sort of figured out and continued to so, so you had a very scrappy, bootstrappy type of, of way of thinking. So, I mean, and, and I think of your introduction into the, the journey of True Pill to be really scrappy and, and kind of the, the story of just evolving organically with the world. So can you tell us about how that started shaping itself? And we know that the story starts with LinkedIn and LinkedIn message. Yeah. yeah. Oh, please go ahead. I mean, like, this is the part, this is actually the part of the story I've been so excited to hear about too, Lolita, because, you know, I, I spent six years dating my wife before I proposed to her. I said, I love you to her actually six months into the relationship, but I still dated her for five and a half years to get that kind of conviction that, I, that we were right to get married. And this part of the story, Lolita, and, and said that uh, I think we want to hear about is, is remarkable because I don't think it's otherwise something I would advise to people. It sounded like a marriage of convenience, at least in the way that it was described to us. But Sid, you've got the color. We'd love to hear more. Yeah. So when I left LinkedIn, it was, it was late 2014 and wanted to sort of all I knew at the time was I wanted to go back to the drawing board and, and start something again. And, and frankly, if you even think about six months prior to leaving LinkedIn, it was, it was on my head to start thinking about, okay, what are some ideas or spaces that I want to work on? And I actually convinced myself at the time that you know what, just being at LinkedIn, I'm not in the headspace to, to sort of come up with those new ideas. Let me leave, you know, clear my slate, get some office space somewhere and, and sort of sit there and start thinking about ideas. And, and frankly, in retrospect, it's, it's not something I would advise to other founders that I call it that year and a half period. I had a ton of fun. And, and you mentioned Samir. Samir was actually the person I was working with very closely. And we were prototyping a number of different ideas. And I would, I would describe it as one of the most fun phases in, in the entire startup journey. It's that year, year and a half year phase where we were just sitting there building things. We would build prototypes and we would throw things at the wall after a month of building or three months of building. And it was- Wasn't one of them the gifting company? It was. It was I think we talked they, about this too at one point. Yeah, there yeah. was stuff in the athletic space. There was stuff in the nutrition space. There was all sorts of different ideas that, was, that we were experimenting with. And I think- what was the most fun about that phase was we were just rapidly prototyping. We get back into those builder phase of, okay, you just want to build as quickly as you possibly can and try things out. But in that process, you you learn a lot about yourself as well. And I think one of the things that became very apparent to me was after you launch a prototype, if you don't have the energy to figure out how to grow it and, and scale it and spend the next phase actually devoting how you scale that 
idea or concept out and you're losing momentum at the, at the three month mark, that's a really bad sign. That's a sign that this is not the idea that you should be pursuing. And I think I'm a big believer now and everyone talks about product market fit. And, and that's the glorified thing that everyone will, will spend forever talking about because it's, it's the most important for any business, but no one talks a lot about the, the founder market fit and the types of problems that can keep you hooked and engaged on something for a long time. And so for me, the, the first sign was building these different prototypes. They just weren't exciting enough for myself or Samir or either of us to say, you know what, I want to spend years working on this problem. It was just fun. And, and we would, we enjoyed that time uh, working together. And uh, ultimately that was, uh, that was the, that was what we spent a lot of time doing, prototyping, exploring different ideas. The intent of it was, yes, we want to find something to work on together or build a new business. And ultimately along the way, I, I spent some more time digging into to different problem areas that I would say you slowly start veering away from things you understand. It was very clear to me that as a founder, you tend to jump back into things you're comfortable with or you know a lot about. And I, I realized that after about a year doing that, I wasn't finding a problem that was was really interesting enough and started doing research in different spaces. And, and that LinkedIn message story is, is actually exactly as it sounds. Um, I spent sort of a week doing an exercise in let's learn about the pharmacy world. And I would pick different industries as crazy as it sounds. I would spend an industry a week huh. and deep into Amazing. Uh, um, picking an industry and saying, let me just learn about it. I know nothing about it. Let me uncover it. Let me talk to some people and discover some problems and maybe stumble into something interesting. And I did this for in, in a couple different areas and then, landed on pharmacy. And um, I went into LinkedIn and I searched for pharmacist and startup, I think is what I found and or searched for. And, and the first result that came up was Omar. And it was, I think he described himself in his headline as startup enthusiast, space pharmacist. And I was like, oh, this is clearly the guy to, to email and message. And I messaged him and within a couple minutes, there's a response back in terms of like the question that I asked and I'm asking another question. And before you know it, you've got this long LinkedIn thread of messages over the span of several hours and then even several days where as it carried over that led to, you know what, there's, this is so interesting. Why don't we just meet up in person and, and spend some time together? And so I invited Omar over and, and we spent some time, time together kind of exploring the pharmacy world and kind of learning more about his view on his experience. And, and to put it into context, he's the person that is running one of the busiest CVS locations in the Bay area. It's a 24 hour location. And, he sees the day-to-day -day problems of everyone coming in and never being happy with the pharmacy experience. He also comes from the UK. So he's educating me on how simple the process is in the UK with, with a single payer system and telling me about how complex and, and messed up the process is in the US. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. And before you know it, and in this tell me more process, it's like six months later and we're still talking about this. And so there's sort of clear, you can start to tell how that's very different than the find an area you want to build prototypes, throw something on the wall and then evaluate. This one got me hooked in a, in a slightly different way, but it was uh, materially different that, that made the difference for me. But so I have to, I have to ask it, uh, sorry, Eric, but I'm so curious to ask this one question. So it sounds like you went through and we're really exploring different areas. So how many other people did you do this exercise with, or, or was this the only one where it really hit and stick? You know, nothing stick like this one. I, I can't even remember the ones I explored before that, probably other spaces that I, I didn't know much about. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is the, the serendipity. Like you have to believe in sort of the serendipity of Silicon Valley that you have to meet someone that can also take you over the hump to learn more about the space and be willing to answer your, you know, call it the, those first 
hundred dumb questions that you have to ask that take a, a month before you really even understand an industry. I think I like to say that I'm, I'm, I'm one of the best people at asking a lot of dumb questions up front. And, but I also have the ability to scale up the quality of questions probably pretty quickly, but that's what makes it fun. And uh, Omar was patient with me and answered all my questions and we're diving deeper and deeper. And, you know, you're, the way I would describe pharmacy at the time is you sort of have to look underneath the stack. You have to lift the hood up and look at all the stuff underneath mm -hmm. the hood. And you find so many interesting problems from an infrastructure standpoint for a, for a product person or like a technologist. It is a, it's like a dream come true to see the amount of just problems underneath the hood that could be solved. And you're like spinning and thinking about, well, where do I get started? Well, what's the initial thesis? What do we want to formulate? How do we go to market? You know, all the, the fun stuff of getting started in a company is you get over that hump of learning enough to be sufficiently dangerous. And then you got to put a plan together to say, okay, now what are we going to do? And how are we going to figure this out? So, you know, when I started Hustle Fund in 2017 with Elizabeth and Sheehan, one of the things that allowed me to get comfort in accepting them as co-founders into this business that we're about to start was actually seeing how they related to their spouses as well as their kids. And to me, when I saw that their values that they're you know, projecting to their, their family and their friends were so closely aligned to mine, it made it actually very comfortable for me to uh, feel like we can jump into this next adventure. How, tell us like, you know, besides just a, a pharmacist meeting an amazing engineer, like the professional perfection of that kind of balance, what kinds of questions or things did you have to answer for yourself to know that this is a guy that I'm going to be essentially brothers with for the next decade or more? Yeah, it's interesting. I only met Omar's family uh, much later in the process. I met his wife much later and his daughter later. And so in the beginning, it, it, it's really, you know, I hate to be cliche and sound, say it's sort of your gut instinct, but it, it's those countless interactions, right? Those hours and hours of interactions that go into how you brainstorm a problem, how you strategize. You're learning about each other that entire step of the way. And when you disagree on something, like, how do you kind of solve that? And I'll give you a sort of a perfect example. Mm. Um, in the beginning, we had to come together and formulate what that go-to-market thesis was. And if you think about where we were in, in the time of now, it's 2015, sort of later in, in 2015, formulating the thesis. If you kind of go back in history, I would describe this time as we were kind of probably a little past the peak of the on-demand phase and, and the craze around all the capitalization and funding into that area. And we started to see some of the unit economics start to falter and some of those companies start to start to fail. And at the time, there were also about, I'd say, three, maybe four different venture-backed direct-to-consumer pharmacies in the space. This was a time when PillPack had still not been acquired by Amazon and you had NimbleRx and, and Capsule and Alto and all pursuing different models in the direct-to-consumer pharmacy world. And you have to ask yourself a really hard question at that time. You know, yes, by virtue of working with Omar, you're exploring something in, in that intersects pharmacy and technology. But do you want to be another direct-to-consumer venture-backed startup in, in that space vying for, for the same investor dollars? And I think for both of us, it became very clear that we wanted to do something materially different. We wanted to force the issue and find a different problem space to go down because you don't want to be the, the fourth or fifth company in a category vying for the same venture capital dollars, frankly, with no, no material insight that could help us out execute or no unfair advantage that would help us be have a competitive edge against any one of those other four players at the time. And so that's, I think, something that was really important in the early days. And I'll tell you, the, the way this kind of evolved for us is, is, is the good news, bad news about this is 
The bad news is it takes a really long time to set up a pharmacy. It took us about a year to go through all the, the regulatory stuff, the board of pharmacy approval, the insurance contracts, the compliance, the regulatory, and that's just to get set up in one state. Then we had to repeat that in, in 50 states and get licensing to ship to all 50 states. And that takes a really long time. But the good news from that is you have a lot of time to figure out what you're going to do. I think at that point we concluded, we know we're going to have technology and we're going to have a pharmacy. The rest was really up to, okay, what are we going to do with this? And that time when we spent getting everything set up was really the, the unlocking moment for us where we got to spend several months talking to every healthcare founder in Silicon Valley, every sort of traditional healthcare player as well. We, we spent a good time talking to a whole breadth of people in healthcare and that ultimately led us to the initial thesis for the company and, and also our first customer, which is also a huge breakthrough kind of when you're going through the, the first stage of your customer, you're asking or first stage of your company, you're asking the question of like, who's going to use this? Why would they use it? And, and, and you stumble into that along the way. Wow. Um, I'd love to actually start talking about the pitch. And uh, so from our research and from our discussions with you, it, it sounds like there's a period of bootstrapping. And then uh, there's actually a fundraising period as well that was, uh, that was a little bit unique in that uh, you didn't produce really any uh, written assets. <laughs> uh, we'd love to actually hear part of that. And then, of course, uh, we, we are able to snag uh, Twist Sid's arm today to, to get his uh, YC Demo Day pitch deck, which, by the way, he hasn't seen for years. So we're going to force you to pitch to us a little bit later. But I guess leading up to YC, like uh, from the bootstrapping period, how did you bootstrap building a pharmacy a pharmacy. And then the second part is just like, how the hell did you raise money with no deck? <laughs> I mean, it was the bootstrapping phase was tough, but it, it's something that I think was really a core to our DNA. Omar for the first year of the company would work nights and weekends at CVS. He would rearrange his whole schedule to work with me during the daytime and nights and weekends at CVS. And, um, you know, I was fortunate that I had some savings to, to kind of elongate my timeline and, and my wife was, was supportive in this journey. And, we just spent some time going through the, the process for that first year. But I think going back to sort of the basics here, I think there's two types of founders that I've come across. Uh, there's one type of founder that has the conviction and ability to imagine the future and kind of pitch the future and get everyone else to believe him or her, right? And, and get someone to write you a check even before they've even put the, the pieces in place. And I think the second kind of founder is, is ones that are um, – they have to build up to that conviction. They have to see it for themselves. They have to believe that it's possible and kind of test the waters themselves. And I'm, I don't think there's a right or wrong playbook for e any type of fundraising exercise. But for me, I think I, I very much fall into that second bucket of I have to believe it myself before I can ever get in front of an investor and ask for money. And, and frankly, I'd be very bad at that first type of raising because you would see right through it that I'm just, I'm just making it up. And I think there are founders I've come across that are very brilliant in that former step. And uh, I sort of know where I'm good at. And I sort of have to build some of that conviction to get to the stage of being able to go to someone and say, yeah, this is ready. I think this is now time where you should write a check or we are trying to raise money. And so, yeah, that was, uh, that's kind of my experience going through it. And as we led up to sort of the year, year and a half moment, I don't think I've told this to a lot of people. So I'll share it here that uh, our first YC application was rejected. So we, we had an interview and we never oh, wow. did the first one. I don't think we, we tell a lot of people about that. So I'll, I'll share that with you guys here. And um, the YC process is a really interesting one. I think um, we obviously have heard about it for many years and had many founders, friends that have went through it. 
But in many ways for, for founders, no matter what stage you're in in your company, whether you're, you're building a second startup, third, or your first company, the YC application is the first time where you actually have to start thinking about like, what is your story? Like, what are you building? What are you doing? And the way the questions are laid out, think of it as almost a, a text version of your pitch deck. And so when you're filling out the application, you have to answer questions like, what are you building? Why is this important? Who needs this? What's your traction? Who are you? And those are basic questions that go into any pitch deck from a, from a fundamental level. And I think that going through that YC application exercise, even without thinking about at the time, it wasn't top of mind to say, we have to raise funding right now. It was more of, hey, we got something cool here. Why don't we put it in a YC application? It was one of those types of processes. And um, I was looking at the application, interestingly, and there's a question that asks about uh, traction. It says, uh, tell us what your traction is. And this is now... Uh, I'd say probably middle or late 2016 now. And actually, no, it was late 2016. And the question was, tell us what your traction is. And I, I wrote down in the application, September, zero prescriptions. October, seven prescriptions. And November, 12 prescriptions. And in parentheses, I said, so far. And I almost laughed at it when I looked at it uh, right before this today that it was funny that I was, I was optimistic back then to include the so far aspect as well that you know, magically, I thought we'd get a huge number in November or something like that. But um, it was crazy to see kind of where we started from. And, you know, today we do close to millions of prescriptions a month. And so amazing. So um, it's That's great. That's incredible. Kind of so from 12 to millions, how does that feel? I mean, it sounds like you just reflected and looked at the application Again, yeah, look, it's I think it's a lot of hard work and there's a huge team now that's behind kind of driving that growth. It's not Omar and myself anymore. It's, it's definitely a much broader team that has got to that. And I think that we've been very, very lucky that in different phases of our growth that uh, our customers and partners are really the heroes. And they have built some amazing businesses that have changed the way healthcare is, is delivered in the country today. And I think that's going to continue. And uh, we're glad to be sort of part of their stories to, to help them on a part of the piece that um, we can add value on the on the pharmacy side, at least when we, we got started. Yeah, well, we, we'd love to. Oh, go ahead, Eric. Oh, no, I think we're going to the same place here. Yeah, uh, I was just going to say, hey, I am ready to hear you pitch, Sid, <laughs> because right. I want to see this YC pitch. Uh, I, I do ready? Too, I Are you I ready? I don't know what it looks like, but let's see what it says. Let, <laughs> okay. And so the setup was uh, when you did the demo day, it was what, early 2017? Yeah. So now uh, I skipped over the second application. It was really interesting. I looked at that application as well. And there was not many changes between the first application and second application. Um, the second application, when we answered the traction question, yeah. now instead of prescriptions, I changed it to revenue. And I think the last three months of revenue I put in, I put in, I think it was $8,000, $10,000 and like $22,000. Those were the actual numbers in the application and wow. facts check it. And now you can sort of see how you know, YC and I think any investor you meet, they want to sort of see those data points over time. I think that's very mm -hmm. important even as, as you meet other founders, you want to track them over time. And for us, there was nothing materially different between our first YC demo day, or sorry, first YC interview and the second outside of just having traction. In fact, you, you'll see it yourself that some of the words and the fragments are exactly the same. The traction is different. And I think that was a, that was a material difference from that first application when we said 12 prescriptions to now we can come back and say $20,000 in revenue that month, which is, um, which is non-trivial to get started, at least in the early stages. And I think that was really the unlocking piece that got the YC team to, to sort of get behind our, our mission and say, okay, yeah, 
I think this, this makes sense. Amazing. Well, let's go ahead and take a look at the Troop Hill YC demo day pitch deck. All right, so we have the pitch deck in place here. And uh, Sid, uh, welcome to the demo day stage. Uh, we would love to hear more about Troop Hill. Cool. Hi, everyone. My name is Sid. I'm the co-founder at Troop Hill, and we're building a B2B pharmacy as a service. Here's how it works. Today, we work with a number of the leading health brands. So imagine you're a patient going to the Nurex website, and you are placing an order for medication. You're consulting with a physician, and then the medication shows up at your doorstep. How does this work behind the scenes? Nurex uses our pharmacy API to pass information to us, and we are the actual pharmacy underneath the hood that is mailing and shipping those medications and shipping them to your door. So when you get that package in the mail from Nurex, it's a true pill pharmacy that is dispensing that medication out, and it's all tied together through a set of APIs. So why do customers use this? Uh, I think the first most important thing is we give customers the ability to control the entire experience. Today, as these customers have developed really magical telehealth experiences, no longer is it a reasonable path to send them into a retail pharmacy to pick up their prescription from a Rite Aid, Walgreens, and CVS. They need to have full control over the experience down to every last detail of where the package is in the fulfillment experience down to the, the branding and the, the white labeling of the experience as well. And so that's the primary reason that customers use us today. And the second is a core part of their revenue comes from the prescription side of the business. And we have unlocked a, a new business model for our customers that are building recurring revenue streams around prescription medication. So here's how we know this is working. In the last month, we did $425,000 in revenue. You can see how this breaks down over the last six months. We started from about $2,000 a month and now $425,000 just through the last uh, six months of operating. And we're continuing to grow 48% month over month. So what does this mean broken down on a day-to-day -day statistic? This translates to about 300 prescriptions a day and our gross margin profile is roughly 15%. So what does this mean as we move forward? Today, we power a number of uh, healthcare brands in the market and we're just getting started on birth control working with Nurex. But when you look at other adjacent spaces that uh, patients have latent demand for in hair loss and acne, these are also multi-billion dollar segments that uh, we believe we can power moving forward. So as a summary, we are Truepill, a B2B pharmacy as a service. We're live in 15 states and all 48 or all 50 states coming soon. And today we booked $425,000 in revenue in August. That's some pretty awesome traction there. I didn't sweat on demo day, but here I am four years later, you got me to break out into a sweat. Well, we're, we're kind of a bigger deal than Y Combinator. <laughs> uh, especially there you go. Yeah, there you go. So it's interesting when I was looking at that, I was trying to reflect, what did I say? I can almost guarantee I didn't say any of those words. It was, it was similar in, in theme, but the actual kind of fragments that tell the story, those kind of, uh, they change over time. And, and I don't remember exactly what I said, but something along those lines. And I think what's interesting, I just realized when I'm looking at this, there's probably like two, maybe three different types of uh, YC demo day pitches. Uh, and again, they've got this whole process mastered. And I think the three that we saw that were most common were number one is you can latch on to sort of a user growth story. And so if your business is, is measured by user growth, you, you can focus on that metric and how you've grown. I think the, the second type of business is, is a revenue traction story or revenue growth. And so you can showcase how you've grown from a, a traction or revenue standpoint. And I think the third is there's a lot of companies out there doing really difficult technology bets that are geared towards futuristic, uh, call it loon shot type bets that are more technology bets. And so their metrics and decks are, are slightly different when they present what they're doing 
at the YC demo day. And for us, I think we we leaned uh, really heavily into the metrics on the revenue side. That was our that was our sort of glowing stat that we wanted to showcase. And I think that I don't recall where we stood in relative to the entire uh, sort of YC batch, but there are some sort of competitive dynamics within your your cohort of, of different types of startups. And I think we were confident that we were really well positioned on the, the revenue standpoint and revenue traction. And so uh, we definitely dug our heels into that part of the story. And, uh, you, you know, you have that graph that every founder obviously loves to try to show. And mm-hmm. for us, I was, um, uh, we, we like showcasing that. And so our business is sometimes complex to explain from a pharmacy standpoint. So I think the tactic we arrived at working with our, our YC team and, and Dalton was let's just get to traction as quickly as possible. So our pitch was explain what you can very simply and then get right to traction. Because when people see the traction, they might then start to pay attention and say, wait a second, well, what are these guys like actually doing? Like mm-hmm. what is Triple yeah. about? And so you kind of want to lead with your, your strong point up front as quickly as possible. And uh, the YC process, given that it, the whole thing is only a couple minutes, it forces you to uh, make sure you're very aligned towards your, your strong suits and, and lean in on those. Um, we, through the research that our producer Hung put together, we saw that it was pretty much that YC demo day pitch deck that then led to a total of about a less than slightly less than $40 million of funding raised. Is that true? Uh, that, that is, that is true. Uh, we got very lucky in that, that, um, as soon as we got into Y Combinator, I picked up the phone and called, uh, Gary Tan. So Gary Tan is someone I've known for, for many years, um, at initialized capital and said, Gary, we got into YC, here's what we're working on. And this is in the beginning of YC. And he came in and said, okay, well, why don't you come in and talk to us? And within a few days after pitching kind of what we're doing, we met the entire partnership um, at initialize and he wrote us a, a million dollar check. And I remember it exactly what he said. It's like, look, um, we want to make an outsized investment in this. We, we believe in this mission and this is slightly larger check size than we typically write. And we want to invest a million dollars. And this is now, you get to put it into context. We are just got accepted into YC or yeah, probably just got accepted. We weren't thinking about fundraising, even YC in itself. We weren't in the fundraising mode and, and Gary um, kind of jumps to the point and says, yeah, we want to invest a million dollars. So now we got to go back and go, okay, well we, we should probably take this right Omar and we should talk about this. And so we chatted about this and said, yeah, yeah, makes sense. And to sort of have some of that capital up front to, to, set up for a smooth downhill process through the, through the end of YC. And at the end of YC, we raised uh, $2.4 million as sort of our entire seed round, the million plus the 2.4. And interestingly, at every subsequent round, whether it was our Series A or even our Series B, we let traction um, tell our story for every single pitch. That was something that has been consistently throughout the, the evolution of our pitches. And in every case, our Series A, Again, Gary stepped up to the forefront and said, we want to lead your Series A. Let's just get it done. And he invested a huge chunk of that. And we, we pulled in another investor as well. And so it was kind of inside the family. So we didn't have to go through an outside fundraising or pitching process. That's, that's remarkable. And what an incredible privilege, too, that uh, you'd have such great supporters that could follow you through this entire journey. So you guys raised a bunch of money. It's been a f- several years since that fateful day when you stepped on stage and, you know, very calmly and confidently shared your traction numbers with investors that FOMO them in. I didn't uh, sweat that day. I know that. Uh, <laughs> I was we'll, we'll call it summer weather in our, in our <laughs> homes. I'm starting to sweat too in the garage. So I, I feel <laughs> you on that. Um, you know, uh, we, 
Lolita and I were were thinking uh, with the show about this show with Hung about how we want to conclude it, and we had to raise the current pandemic, you know, coronavirus as perhaps like one of the ways to, uh, because like, you know, the world seems to be moving into this telehealth, uh, this kind of vision of the world that I think you guys were putting out. (laughs) That's like more true now than it was perhaps back in 2016. And we'd love to get your thoughts in terms of, uh, you know, what does the future of health look like for us? in you know, the five minutes or so that remains, but also just, you know, where do you think, the true pill business evolves from here. Yeah. So I think um, I'll add this context that when you get started as a company, you never sort of think about these types of scenarios of like, it's just like nobody thinks about a concept like a pandemic hitting and how it impacts your business at sort of like best case scenario. You might think about like, how does my business kind of work in a downturn in the economy or uh, the markets crash? How does that impact my business? For example, but even that sometimes like, uh, when you're in the midst of the excitement of getting something started, you don't think about like, oh, what happens if the market goes bad? That's really kind of a, you know, in all honesty, probably an afterthought for many founders and maybe for others it's not. But if anyone tells you that they thought about a pandemic when they started their business, they're just like flat out lying. So that's just <laughs> not true at all. And so when it actually happens and you start to realize that your business has, you know, what, what I like to describe as like pandemic market fit, like it actually kind of fits the time and what's needed in the market. Wow. Um, you go through this like magical moment of like empowerment to realize that in many ways, especially in healthcare, we describe this as a, a once in a lifetime opportunity to be in healthcare with, with all the stars aligning to kind of really shift the way healthcare is done in this, in this country. And I think for us, it's all about kind of positioning our business and the assets and the things we're building to, to sort of transition the entire world over to a, what we describe as a new normal or a post COVID normal. And in some ways we talk about how COVID is, is our businesses. Like I told you so moment, we, we've been working on telehealth for years as well as our customers. And now when COVID happens, you start to realize that the whole entire infrastructure is not geared to switch over to telehealth overnight. And we always talk about how 80% of telehealth visits or 80% of healthcare rather can be done over telehealth. And, and over digital experiences, but the underlying infrastructure, when you think about the, the pharmacies, the, the, the telehealth providers and the lab testing infrastructure, it, it's nowhere near what's required to power that 80% of healthcare. And so for us, it's about building those assets where we get really excited is, is unbundling those really hard, complex problems, whether it's the telehealth network or the pharmacy or spending some time in the lab testing world and then thinking about how to abstract this in a, in a set of APIs that is easy for anybody to use. Um, if you come to our APIs today, uh, it's written in a way that you should be able to do all of this in a few lines of code and we take all the complexity away from you. And so for us, our business is evolving into this world where uh, major health plans in the, com- in the country come to us and say, uh, Trupil, we'd like to put together this experience that involves this questionnaire, this lab test, this telehealth visit, and we want this medication prescribed. And for us, we kind of act as a Shopify to stitch together this, this experience for our health plan customer. And it's a really exciting time for us to, to kind of see these types of experiences get imagined uh, within the walls of, of very large health plans in the country. And you know, we continue to foster our, our health brand segment. And today, couldn't be more excited about brands like GoodRx and, and Nurex and Hims that, that we work very closely with that are continuing to grow extremely fast. And so uh, really excited to see different parts of our business uh, start firing on all cylinders through 
through the pandemic. And I think a lot of folks in healthcare have experienced this, but our last three months have been uh, the best month in the entire best months in the entire company's history. And uh, those are things that we're very very fortunate about and continuing to sort of keep accelerating and keep mindful that we want to continue that momentum. So really, really fun time to be in healthcare. And I encourage that, you know, anyone that's thought about joining healthcare now is there's never been a better time to, to jump in. Well, it's so exciting to hear about how you're enabling through TruePill uh, the telehealth in a, evolution that we're going through just as we are living our day-to-day with COVID and beyond. Um, and, and so thank you for sharing everything that you have shared today. Uh, before we close out, is there anything that you would like to leave our founders with in terms of some guidance that you would have wanted to have starting out as a founder yourself? Yeah, I think... Um what I've come to appreciate is that hard, complex businesses are, are, are the most fun for me. And I think that's, uh, I really encourage folks to really pick hard problems to go very deep into. And it's very easy to, I spend most of my career actually in direct to consumer. And I think it's, it's a really fun space. It, it teaches you from a product sense, how to think about a direct to consumer business. And then when you switch over to the B2B world, you start to bring your, your consumer skills into the B2B world. And we're seeing, not only in our world, we talk about consumerization of healthcare, but you're seeing consumerization of overall B2B. And I think the more and more founders go from B2C businesses to B2B, and I always tell my founder friends, like, I'll never do a B2C uh, company again, because uh, the sort of the type of scale and the type of efficiencies efficiencies you get on the B2B side, it's, it's just a completely different way of thinking. And the more B2C thinkers that enter this space, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun to, to try to untangle some of these problems and yes it might take a year to sell it into a customer but uh after you sell into it it, it's totally worth it because everything is is predictable and scalable and repeatable and i think um i just love the inherent repeatability of a b2b business that um it doesn't replace a b2c business there's always uh going to be great b2c companies that are built but i've found sort of a passion in, in healthcare and uh taking a b2b platform approach so that's something i would encourage everyone to think about hard industries, hard problems. I think the most interesting businesses to build are uh, often very deep in the stack. So, so just go very deep in whatever industry you're looking at and, and find those hard problems to solve. Sid Viswanathan is the co-founder of TruePill. Uh, he has just walked us through his first pitch and some thoughts in terms of the context of his origin story and the future of the healthcare industry. Uh, we are so honored and thankful and grateful that you come on today to share your first pitch and share some of these stories with us. So thank you again, Sid, for coming. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It was my pleasure and I had a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to First Pitches. For show notes and more, visit our website, firstpitches.com, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and never miss an episode. First Pitches is produced and edited by Hong Pham. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to rate our show and leave us a review. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon. Smart companies run on NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. With NetSuite, you'll have the visibility and control over your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. Everything you need, all in one place. You'll have the agility to compete with anyone 
work from anywhere, and run your whole company right from your phone. Join over 21,000 companies who trust NetSuite to make it happen. Get your free guide and schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash first pitches. Frank Rimmerman is a public accounting firm whose history is closely intertwined with that of Silicon Valley. With humble beginnings similar to so many startups, Frank Rimmerman was formed with a desire to serve the entrepreneurial and venture communities of the Valley, supporting those who think outside the box. This is what the Frank Rimmerman team told us at first pitches. Even we agree accounting work can be boring. That's why we chose to work with some of the most innovative and creative people, people who are changing the world around us every day. Their excitement fuels our passion and determination to grow and serve this special community. Frank Rimmerman is the entrepreneurial CPA firm. Check them out at frankrimmerman.com slash startup services.